First Coast Connect with Melissa Ross is sponsored in part by Baptist Health. Unaffordable Florida. Good morning and happy Valentine's Day. We're live with you from Studio 2. I'm Melissa Ross. This is First Coast Connect. Thanks for listening. Just ahead, what's making Florida one of America's most expensive states? This used to be the place people came to to pay less money for housing. Give us a call. It's 549-2937. Then later, we speak with City Council candidate Alberta Hibbs. Plus, how Crowley Maritime is working to get Jacksport to net zero carbon emissions by the year 2050. That and more ahead. But first this hour, a report looking at housing prices across the country says Florida has become one of the most unaffordable places in America to live. Now, a number of factors are driving the skyrocketing rents we've been seeing for some time now across the state. They're moderating a little bit, but hey, just like the book says, the rent is still too damn high. That never gets old. Tim Gibbons is editor at the Jacksonville Business Journal. He's got both the good and the bad news about our local economy, and it's good to see you. Good morning. Good to see you as well. Let us know, folks. Uh, are you a recent transplant to Jacksonville? Are you struggling to pay rent? Rents are up by double digits, especially in Florida. Give us a call as we talk about housing costs and the increasingly unaffordable Florida and what's being done about it. It's 549-2937, 549-2937. Let us know how you're making your bills each month. Emails to firstcoastconnect at wjct.org. Tweets to at Melissa Injax. So this is not news. We've known this for a while, Tim. Uh, rents are up by double digits around the country. In Florida, they have ballooned. So many people have come to the state during the pandemic, and a lot of them here to Jacksonville. So are we still the, the, the most expensive place in America to live, as recent reports have indicated? Well, it's interesting. So, so we, the, you have two different things there. You have absolute level. And, you know, on that level, obviously, Jacksonville is not, not the most expensive. You know, you're looking at, at whatever, New York or L.A. or San Francisco. Um, what, what's hit Jacksonville has been the rate of increase. And for people who've lived here for a while, obviously, that's an issue because you're used mm-hmm. to paying whatever you pay in rent each month. And when it goes up by a double-digit percentage, it doesn't matter what people are paying in, in Chicago or New Orleans, wherever. It matters what you're paying here. Mm-hmm. So here's the somewhat good news. Rents and home prices are moderating. Um, nationally, they're, I mean, everything's still increasing. You know, when, <laughs> I remember my father talking about uh, mm-hmm. when I was a kid, the, the price of milk never goes down. You know, <laughs> it goes up and it's got to stick there. But yeah. rents are not increasing as quickly now, although Jacksonville still is seeing one of the highest rate of increases year over year in the country. Yeah. So if you look at um, nationally, rents have increased something on, on the order of, uh, in, in Jacksonville, they've increased about 7.5% year over year. Nationally, from January to January, um, increased about 2.8%. Now, realize, of course, that's after a year of tremendous rental increases across the board, particularly in Jacksonville, as we've had that influx of people. UNF's new Jack's Rental Housing Project was just published, and it found about half of the people in Duval County are what they call cost-burdened meaning they're struggling to make the rent right. in some way or another. And you have, you have two issues there. There's the, the pure human cost of um, being able to afford a place to live. It's also an economic development issue. Um, you look at areas, and, and you can see this as a microcosm in somewhere like St. Augustine, where the, if you are in the service industry, the idea of being able to afford a place in St. Augustine is basically impossible. And as the city grows, as you have more people coming in, particularly in those um, the service industry jobs, some of the, the lower paid jobs, people can't live anywhere near where they work. That's a problem, too. We'll go to your calls in a bit at 549-2937. Now, rent control is essentially banned in Florida, although some large Florida cities have been trying to provide local relief. Crystal ball, that's not going to happen. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, There is a state rental assistance program, but it's very hard to tap into. And at the same time, the Jacksonville City Council is looking at these critical quality of life issues. This is one of them. It is. Can we expect any real action on it, on this? 
I mean, it's such a complex problem, and that that's where you get into um, rent caps. Um, you, you talk to anybody who's in the, the landlord side of that game, and they look at the rising cost of building things and the, the rising permanent costs and all of those issues that they would look and go, you, you can't cap rents. Um, there is some interesting movement on the state level for for changing how security deposits are done, which it sounds sounds kind of you know small, but the idea that when you think about younger people, when you think about people who have to move for whatever reason, that first last security, you know, you you need to have triple your rent, mm-hmm. your already high rent to move somewhere. So if you can figure out a way to adjust that, that's actually one way they are looking at at providing relief. Our guest this morning is Tim Gibbons of the Jacksonville Business Journal. Jacksonville and Florida growing by leaps and bounds, but part of those growing pains mean this is becoming increasingly unaffordable as a place to live. We want to hear from you. Give us a call, 549-2937. Victoria is in San Marco. Hi, Victoria. Good morning. Hi, good morning. Thanks for having me on. So what's your story, Victoria? Um, So I am from uh, Central Florida, born and raised, and then after college, I moved to Boston, Massachusetts, and um, after a decade in Massachusetts, my now large family and I decided to move back to Florida, Um, and we were really shocked, I guess I was as a native Floridian, that we would not be saving any money moving from high-tax Massachusetts to um, Jacksonville. When we did the math during our closing here, um, we bought and sold a house for the exact same price. So it wasn't in the market or the, you know, the housing bubble from COVID. It was really in that homeowner's insurance that has just continued to escalate, that we were not prepared with that high number. Um, Car insurance, again in florida is shockingly high i Mm -hmm. guess and then just overall cost of life um we haven't found it to be much of a savings to live here versus to live in massachusetts don't people call massachusetts taxachusetts i know taxachusetts but really when it comes to the state tax and the high taxes we were paying in our community you know that money has directly gone to our homeowners insurance here in Florida, uh-huh. it's all, it was almost the exact same number. Um, and then, of course, we we weren't really prepared to be paying more than double in um, car insurance every year. Right. And then again, just overall, nothing has really appeared to be that much cheaper living here in, in Jacksonville compared to living in Massachusetts. Well, I'm sorry to hear that, Victoria. Thank you for calling. Here's the thing, Tim. This is the new reality. For many decades now, people have seen Florida as a tax haven, as a place where there's lower cost of living, as an attractive place to retire when you are on a fixed income. That's all changing. No, and that, that caller is is honestly a, a perfect example of the reality that, that people are facing. Um, there, there's always that idea. I've talked to people who've talked about moving sticker shock. So one of the reasons for home pricing home prices increasing is the idea that if you're moving from Atlanta, you're moving from, from Boston, what you can buy at that level is going to be bigger or you're going, you're, you're, you're willing to spend more because the house that you've sold is probably at a higher point. Um, what that doesn't take into account is things like the homeowner's insurance crisis, and I think it's fair to call it a crisis, mm-hmm. that those prices will just keep on continuing to rise and insurers will keep on leaving the state. Um, and that is an issue that the state has very much struggled to deal with. Mm-hmm. There's also the hidden cost. So you move down, in, in the caller's case, she was probably prepared for this being a native Floridian. But if you grew up in a Massachusetts, you move down here, you buy your house on the beach, everything's great, until that first hurricane hits. Now you have kind of, you know, the soft cost of, of hurricane supplies and, and dealing with whatever damage there is. Obviously, yes, in Massachusetts, you'd have you'd have snowstorms. But mm-hmm. um, there is a fear among some that the influx of people from other areas, they're not prepared for Florida life and they're not thinking about the things that you will need to, to budget for in your household budget when it comes to things like hurricanes, including evacuations. That's such an important point. Let's go to some more of your calls as we talk about unaffordable Florida. 
I hate to tell you that on Valentine's Day. <laughs> when you go out tonight and celebrate with your sweetheart, uh, maybe you'll go somewhere cheaper than you might have in the past. I don't know. But give us a call. 549-2937. Emily in Riverside. Good morning to you, Emily. Good morning, Melissa. Happy Valentine's Day. You too. So thankfully, I'm one of the millennials who moved back to Jacksonville from St. Augustine a few years ago, and I got a good job, but I still have mom and dad to thank to help me pay my rent, unfortunately, but it's definitely That's the me best rental assistance month. program, isn't it? It is. So you have mom and dad helping out? I do. I do. So I can save up, uh, you know, pay down some debt. Well, I wish you luck with that, Emily, and I'm glad you have your folks helping you. That's, I mean, you know, you think of that movie. I brought this up to someone just the other day. Do you remember that movie, Tim, Failure to Launch? Mm -hmm. The guy that wouldn't move out of his parents' house. And it wasn't because he couldn't afford to. He just didn't feel like it. But today, kids are either living at home with their parents longer or mom and dad are helping out. Not because the child, the young adult doesn't want to work hard and get ahead because they just can't pay all the bills. Like everything else that goes on in the world today, obviously all of that becomes part of the, the ongoing cultural war battles. I was reading something the other day, you know, your typical rant about kids today, they, they won't leave the parents' <laughs> nest. And it's interesting if you talk to kids today, they'd love to leave the parents' yeah, nest. Yeah, they want to. My but, kids want out and they're right, not even But But, 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 but this <laughs> is the idea. So, so when you think about it, that, you know, <laughs> if, if rent in Jacksonville, so so the the Mm-hmm. figures are you know new rent not not this is not looking at everybody who's renting now but um if you rent an apartment in January this year versus January last year you're paying 7.5% more um the you know median rent is I don't know something like like 1700 I have to actually dig that number up but um so if you are a young person, mm-hmm. you're supposed to have first, last, and security. You have this huge nut to, that you have to pay. Mm-hmm. You have student loans, which are ever going up. Um, wage increases have not caught up with inflation. And then you have food costs and all of that. Mm-hmm. That plenty of young people today do want to have the life that, you know, you and I would have had at their age. But but it's much more difficult. Five four nine two nine three seven. Lots of calls. Tell us your unaffordable Florida stories, please. We want to hear from you. David in Intercoastal West. Hello, David. Good morning to you. Good morning, Melissa. A, a couple of things. I know the discussion is really on the rent and affordability of rent in Jacksonville. But what about home ownership? Melissa, I just paid my house off. I bought it brand new in 1997 for $82,000. Mm-hmm. I was able to make additional payments over the years. I shaved five years off my mortgage. I paid it off last uh, year in December. I'm done. I have my home paid for. How do these younger kids ever go to afford to purchase a single-family home? Uh, we, it's almost like we've given up on that. And that was the story and the reason that got sold to all of us during the last century, that home ownership was a right of an American. If you worked hard, you saved your money, you could buy a home. How, does, how do young couples go out and afford a three hundred fifty dollars to $400,000 house? Yeah, hundred uh, percent. And, and the David. reason I say this, Melissa, the reason I say this, five years ago I helped my daughter buy a home. She paid one hundred sixty-eight thousand dollars for it. It's in my same subdivision. To today, I'm trying to help my thirty-three-year-old get into a home and, and buy a home. Everything we're looking at is north of three hundred fifty thousand dollars. And I think a big part of what's driving rent is the the lack of housing in the city. And I believe a big part of the lack of housing in the city is due to corporate money mm-hmm. coming in and buying single-family homes and using it as a capital investment. Thus you are correct. You are you are right yeah. about all of that, David. And congrats on paying off your house. Okay, great points from David. Oh, yeah, you call, your callers are amazing, as always. Yeah, um, I mean, you know, you know, he, I, he gets it. I mean, and, and these institutional corporate investors, they've gobbled up so much housing stock in Jacksonville that you can't get into the market. That's one kind, of the problems. Kind, kind of. There's a feeling that's, that's the case. Uh, institutional investors have pulled back a bit, although Jacksonville is one of the highest institutional investor cities in the country. Um, what you also are seeing is more build-to-rent. You're seeing some... Um, you know, plan communities here, master plan communities that have rental housing where in the past they would not, that, that's, a, that's a change. And it's one of the, you know, I mean, it, it, it's a chicken and egg sort of thing of you can't afford to buy a house. The median house in Jacksonville now is $370,000. If you can't afford to buy it, you have to rent. 
that means institutions are coming in and either building or buying houses to rent, which takes those off the market and, you know, does create a cycle. To a certain extent, building our way out of this is one of the few things that mm -hmm. would help. But, you know, material shortages and labor shortages and building land costs money and all, it's not an easy fix. What about his point that if you're a young adult, homeownership is increasingly unattainable for you. That that is absolutely the fear. Realtors don't like don't like the term entry level home, but um that segment of the market has basically vanished. You know, you look at the cost and complexity of building a home now, you don't have a lot of builders doing at least in these larger communities doing those entry level sort of homes. The idea is, you know, if you're an entry level sort of person, you're probably renting. Um, you know, there's still infill. Infill developments and infill projects do tend to be on that lower end. Things have moderated slightly. Um, after the huge boom of the past two years, the um, median home price in Jacksonville actually has retreated slightly. Um, it fell 1.7% from December to January, although still it's up, you know, 5.5% year over year. Calls from across the listening area. Casey in Nocatee. Good morning to you, Casey. You're a realtor, is that right? Yes. Actually, good morning, and my name is Kathy, but I have Cassie. a New York accent. Oh, <laughs> awesome. We love New York accents. So talk to us. Okay. Well, I'd love to say a lot of things uh, because this is really uh, making my juices flow, but I think I just want to focus on, um, I have, the, the, have had the good fortune of also working at Trader Joe's in Jacksonville, working for the library in Jacksonville. So I work with a lot of working class people. Um, and one of the things that I think needs to be mentioned is the, the crisis that's occurred with families, not just young couples, but families living in their cars. It is happening in Jacksonville because people who work, and I emphasize working people, you know, these are the people who cannot afford the rent. They certainly are out of the, the realm of any house buying. And so people are living in their cars, in parking lots, you know, in Walmart, in a number of places, and I think it's something that has to be, um, you know, brought to public attention because the kids are going to school from their cars. You know, they're washing up in the library bathroom in the morning, and so when we think of the the homeless crisis, I think we need to really recognize that we are doing this to people who are supporting us at every level. You know, if you go into the restaurant, if you go into Target, these are people who are working who can't make their rent. And I just feel so, so much that we have to pay attention to that and not separate out the classes of people as if, you know, the only problem is I'm 30 and I can't buy a home right now. That's an important problem, but it certainly is not the only one facing Jacksonville. You're absolutely right, Cassie. Thank you. And so she could not be more accurate about that. No, and I actually I think it's, it's worth mentioning since she is a realtor, the, uh, the real estate agent community has tried to take a, a lead on this issue. There's a whole, and it, I, I can't summarize it well enough quickly on radio, but there's a whole issue with the state affordable housing fund. And realtors have actually been the ones really pushing to make sure that that money is used to to help the people who need it. The state oftentimes does not, sweeps it into other things. Yeah, they but, put it into other things. Right. But, but there is that issue that... Um, it's easy. It's kind of like the avocado toast sort of thing. Oh, kids today, they just, you know, they, they want, to work, want to work hard enough to buy a house. And it, it's not just kids these days. It's it's And people it's people all, working hard living in their cars. Exactly. All, all, all ages, all level of the, the socioeconomic spectrum. Matt in St. Augustine. Good morning to you, Matt. Good morning. Um, I live in an apartment complex in St. Augustine that's owned by an investment group. Last year, my rent went up 30%, and it wasn't the worst. Another guy had his go up 40%. Over the last two years, my rent's gone up 50%. And that's ridiculous. I'm just glad I bought my land to build a house on before all this started. Yeah, Matt. Uh, thanks for that. Uh, yeah. Uh, when you, someone hikes your rent 50%, the average person uh, on an average salary... They can't right. pay it. I mean, you, you look at so, so Raleigh, North Carolina was the highest increase from January to January after already high increases. They went up 22.5% to this January without looking at, you know, the other increases along the way. Again, that goes back to the influx of people coming in. So 
I, I'm not going to pretend that I have an answer for this, but one of the things that Jacksonville is proud of is we have good economic development people who have helped attract companies, who have helped grow the economy. But that means you get people coming from cities where, yeah, they can pay $2,000, $3,000 for rent. Mm-hmm. They come in and that, that distorts the market. And that, that's pricing out uh, people on a fixed income, lower income workers. So as a lot of people are flowing into the state, some people are looking around and saying, maybe I'm going to leave. I can't afford to stay here. Right. That, that is the, I mean, we, we, we're used to seeing those sort of stories coming out of places like California. And, and you know, I know Florida, somewhat strangely, likes to compare itself to California and that idea of, well, leave, leaving the high-tax state. But you have people, and, and this is why I found your earlier caller so um, incisive there, the idea that, yes, we're a low-tax state, but if we're a high homeowner's insurance and high auto insurance and you know all of those other costs that come in, the total cost of living is not necessarily lower just because your taxes are lower. Aaron emails the show. Hi, he says, I own rental property in St. Augustine. I include utilities in my rent. My property taxes have gone up several thousand recently. My insurance is up by a couple of thousand, and then it went up 5,000 more this year. My water sewer bill is up. Other utilities are up. And he goes on to say uh, that there are many factors that drive increases in rent. So, I, I, And I, th- I think that's important. I mean, and, and I don't think we've done it on this show, but there is an easy, um, you know, swinging into to demonizing landlords. And frankly, there's a part of this coin is as rents go up, that drives construction. The reason that we see apartment complexes popping up everywhere across the city is because they can charge more in rent. So I'm not not trying to minimize the pain of the people who are paying it, but there is the idea that the the higher the rents, the more people will build apartments, which eventually, theoretically, will help help moderate that sort of thing. But yeah, we talk about homeowners insurance. If you're an apartment complex, you need the same sort of sort of insurance, and that has you know. Can you imagine trying to insure a 427 unit apartment from hurricane damage in in, in this climate? Crazy. On Facebook, Tom says zoning changes could help, along with impact mm-hmm. fees on larger, more expensive homes. There needs to be an incentive for builders to build more affordable housing. Which, if if, if somebody can make that work, that uh, that that is the solution. I mean, but you say zoning, and frankly, trying to upzone areas, trying to have more dense construction, trying to do the things that let more construction be, trying, you know, letting auxiliary buildings be used for housing, all of those would help. Then you walk into a neighborhood and you say, okay, we're going to put an apartment complex in, you know, your residential neighborhood and people lose their mind. NIMBYism is real and, and it is a challenge. Susie tweets the show, I moved here from Maryland in 1978. My two bedroom apartment in Orlando uh, was affordable, she says, but now it's like the frog in warm water. They're turning up the heat, and those of us who've been here for years have been lulled into complacency. Here's another tweet. We just made a loan from our retirement fund to our daughter in another state so that she could afford a home. Jeff in Springfield. Good morning, Jeff. Hey, I, I, good morning. I just want to make a real quick comment. I mean, all, all of these issues that are going on are consequences of living in a free, free capitalist society. And people really object in a lot of ways, and particularly in government circles and, in, and people with a lot of money, object to infringing on that. And some of the zoning issues and some of the extra taxes and stuff are exactly what's going to happen, is what needs to happen to change the situation. I'm a landlord. I'm, I, I get with all, all the things. I'm actually trying to figure out a model in which I can do low-income housing and still make as much money as I do with my Airbnbs. Just... You know, it's it's the Airbnb market right now is tanking, so it's it's going to be an interesting little transition. But there's there's a whole lot of it's a direct result of living in a free democratic capitalist society, and if we because the money will follow where the profits go. So all of this, if you're going to change it, is going to have to change the approach to how we handle and live and live in the society that we live in. So I'm okay with changing that stuff, but everybody's got to be on board with it and, and have a, a larger sense of like, ask not what you can do for your country, what your country can do for you, but what you can do for your country kind of thing. That's got to change. You either got to get back to that as opposed to the 80s, 90s, early 2000s. It's all about me and how much money I make. Anyway. All right, Jeff. Thank you. 
All right. So if the market decides, yeah, that's our the mantra of. Uh, I, I don't think we're allowed to have a discussion about late stage capitalism without A.G. Gankarski here. Um, <laughs> but but no, I mean that and that that is a. But when you say late stage capitalism, <laughs> that sort of infers that. At a, at a certain point, we're not going to be living under a capitalist uh, society. It would just be later stage. Um, okay. But, but the um, no, I mean that, that the, the caller is right, of course, that um, there is a we live in a society sort of issue here that we as a society have to decide what we want. And um, if we think that affordable housing is a crisis issue, we as a society, we as a state, we as a city have to decide what to do about it. Well, as, and, and not to cut you yeah. off. But as we talk about this, they're getting ready to pass a ban on panhandling in Jacksonville, which is a direct outgrowth of the fact that people can't afford housing here. Right. Well, it, it's an issue of yeah, many things, the mental yeah. health crisis that we have as a, as a, as a country and, and housing issues and, and the influx of people and all of that. And I would say, without getting too far out of my lane, that oftentimes we want to deal with the end result of something. We want to deal with the panhandlers. Because in some ways, it's much easier to tell someone they can't panhandle, saying, how do we set up an affordable housing structure that works? That's way more difficult than rousting somebody off a sidewalk. And uh, requires multiple mayoral or city council administrations to get going successfully when you can get the short-term payoff of saying, I've passed this legislation to deal with this end of the problem. Exactly. So... All right. Well, it's always good to get your insights. Tim Gibbons, editor of the Jacksonville Business Journal, I want to thank you for coming in today. Thanks a lot. It was fun. And much more still ahead on the show later in the hour. We meet another candidate for local city council, and it's a familiar name and face. Alberta Hips will join us. But up next, how Jacksonville's Crowley Maritime Shipping Company is working to help Jacksport get to net zero carbon emissions by the year 2050. We'll tell you how in just a few moments. We'll be right back. Well, Jacksport recently was awarded a federal grant of $47 million. It's part of the Inflation Reduction Act signed by President Joe Biden to help the port reduce its carbon emissions to net zero by the year 2050. That's the target set by climate scientists. Jacksonville-based Crowley Maritime will administer the funds. Now, for more on how this is going to work, I spoke with Megan Atkinson, Vice President of Sustainability at Crowley. Hey, Megan. Good to be with you. Thanks for joining us. Yeah, thanks. Thanks for having me. So big news uh, out of Jacksport. They won this big grant to reduce carbon emissions down to net zero by the year 2050. Crowley Maritime, your organization, you're overseeing how these funds will be spent. Tell us more about this. Uh, well, we're really excited to partner with Jacksport on um, the administration of this federal grant. Uh, these kinds of partnerships help us accelerate our sustainability progress faster, help us uh, accelerate the port's progress and, and the communities that we serve. So really excited to be part of it. Jacksport won a federal grant of $47 million, and uh, a portion of that grant will be used at Crowley's term- Terminal to support electrification for uh, uh, refrigerated container stacks, uh, 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 higher efficiency cranes, electric forklifts, and other specialty um, um, yard equipment. 
So a lot of changes on the ground at Talleyrand and Blunt Island, it sounds like. Is that right? That's right. That's right. So what does this involve logistically to make all of these changes? Because your goal is to make enough changes that would be the equivalent of taking nearly a million cars off the road. Uh, yeah, so to, to make the changes that, that equate to that, that um, uh, 900,000 of cars off the road on an annual basis, that, that's a calculation um, that is the result of us achieving our long-term greenhouse gas goals. So this is a portion of how we will, we will uh, uh, meet those goals. And so Crowley has set a net zero greenhouse gas emissions target by 2050 across all scopes. Uh, so that's scope one, two, and three emissions. And scope one emissions have to do with our operations. Scope two emissions are utilities. And scope three emissions are up and down our value chain, our uh, products that we purchase and um, capital projects and all of our investments mm-hmm. in joint ventures. Um, so this is a portion of the way that we will uh, meet that goal by 2050, yes. And you're also working on a plan for moving the whole industry towards zero emission tech, the whole local maritime industry. That's a heavy lift. Can you tell us more about that? Yeah. So I really, this is all about partnership and, and Crowley wants to be, wants to be part of the progress moving forward. We see our sustainability uh, journey as um, necessary both for the industry and for the customers and the communities that we serve. Customers are absolutely demanding that um, uh, their logistics providers are part of the solution and doing what uh, they need in order to drive down the emissions associated with the products that they sell. So we uh, intend to be part of that solution, and we really think that it. Um, that it sets us apart, uh, and, and we expect that the industry will um, continue making progress on this front and in, in the uptake of, of new technology in order to um, best serve the, the industry that, w- that we're all a part of. Mm. Now, you are going to be talking to the First Coast Tiger Bay Club about this on Friday. Uh, Crowley's really developing a name for itself around the region for sustainability. So this goes along with that, it sounds like. Yeah, we have been um, involved in uh, many uh, community events and and community activities to really uh, spread the word of what we're doing. We're um, one of the largest transportation uh, employers in Northeast Florida. We're very proud of that. Uh, but we also have a global footprint and uh, and have operations in you know 36 territories and and, and countries in the Western Hemisphere. So um, you know, really working on this locally, but but thinking about it globally, as the saying goes, and mm-hmm. and uh, and and uh, you know, working to um, you know affect our footprint here uh, with this grant in in Jacksport. Well, thank you for being with us. She's Megan Atkinson, VP of Sustainability at Crowley Maritime here in Jacksonville. Thanks. Thank you. Well, a familiar name and face around town is jumping back into the local political arena. Alberta Hibbs is running for Jacksonville's City Council, District 14 on the west side. And if she wins, it won't be her first time serving on that body. In fact, she's a former City Council president. We continue our series today on candidates running for local office. 
as we welcome Alberta Hips to Studio Two. Good morning. Good morning. Good to be with you, Melissa. Good to see you. I haven't seen you in quite a bit. So uh, you're jumping back into the political game, running for District 14, former city council president, business owner, farmer. Why did you decide to run for office again? Well, I was drawn into the new Council 14 district out of 12 on the redistricting. And I looked at the opportunity when I saw other people that were running to represent that area. And I felt like I had the experience and, you know, how passionate I am about the West Side and wanting it to continue to Mm -hmm. grow and uh, qualified and am delighted to uh, get to know people uh, again and and been very affirmed by the calls I've got and people are happy to have me back on the campaign trail. What are the biggest issues for the district you'd be representing? Well, you know, I was really interested in your last uh, person that talked about affordable housing. Mm -hmm. That's one of the main issues that we have in our district and through the city, but also crime. You know, we have those shot spotters along 103rd Street, and there's so much that I think can be done with uh, working with JSO and all the resources in the community for youth and uh, anyone that might have uh, had some problems and can be helped out to be a more productive citizen. Now, as I mentioned, you served as city council president when you were on the council before. It was a different political era. Right. Uh, this current city council has dealt with a lot of controversy, erosion of the public trust on a number of issues, everything from, you know, the JEA debacle and federal investigation to uh, Lot J, the failed push to give a lot of money to Shad Khan's company to develop around the stadium. There have been all manner of issues. So what are your thoughts about that as you've been watching as a private citizen, how voters out there are looking at our local political leadership? Well, I think there we have had trust eroded. I was very fortunate to serve the eight years with uh, Mayor Delaney as the mayor and uh, a city council that had its issues um, among our members of of, uh, Mm -hmm. different opinions and so forth. But really, uh, I think one of the things that was a proof of trust of government is when the Better Jacksonville Plan Mm -hmm. was passed unanimously through council. I was president then and, you know, coming together and that manner of drawing consensus with the community was a a different era, I think, in terms of transparency. I remember Mayor Delaney had town hall meetings all over the city Mm. asking about the needs, taking input. Uh, He didn't all of a sudden go to a podium and announce we're going to do this. He really worked with the council and with the whole community. And I think it would be good to see that model back in. Getting more buy-in from the community about big changes. Exactly. So you mentioned two big issues, affordable housing and public safety. What do you think local officials should be doing to make this city more affordable? What can they reasonably do? Well, I think that we need to work not only with the city, but with the state. Mm -hmm. Uh, Look at perhaps uh, laws on the state level, legislature that can help. And I think there may be some that we haven't even tapped into. Uh, It's certainly something I was so um, glad that you had um, the last speaker on because I have a granddaughter who's just got her master's and she's out and uh, now looking for something that's affordable just out of college. And it's, uh, you know, it's a real issue. And it's an issue for people that are working every day, maybe two or three jobs uh, to make it through. I think our planning department uh, needs to, in zoning, all those issues, we need to take a more global look at how we can um, be sensitive to the needs of more affordable housing. Mm-hmm. You know, I went to Paxson High School, and there was a builder, um, Safrinka Builders. They built Normandy Village across Normandy Boulevard, um, and I went to schools, a lot of those uh, children from that area, and they were nice, affordable homes, and there was no stigma about that. They were starter homes. I think we need to 
get our mindset to know that our young people need somewhere to start. Somewhere to start. Now, you talked also about public safety. That's a perennial concern in Jacksonville. The police budget keeps getting bigger every year, but we continue to have a problem. What what should we do differently? Well, I think we have to look at um, how we can engage young people in positive activities. You know, when I was um, growing up, Woodstock Park was off of Beaver Street, was just a mecca of the recreation department having activities all the time. There is some of that going on, but we know how much um, that if you can get kids happy and engaged, whether it's sports, Boy Scouts, anything like that, to make those idle times in their life engaged in a positive way is one way. Mm -hmm. And then I think community policing uh, walks with the sheriffs, make sure that the neighborhoods kind of know their policemen Mm -hmm. as a friend and not so much as someone that is um, not there to help. Now, I realize this probably isn't a big part of your campaign, but since it's such a big issue on the city council, I wanted to ask you about it. What are your thoughts about the way there's a, a then now a city council committee tasked with investigating a city council person, Leanna Cumber, who's running for mayor, over her husband's uh, tangential involvement in the JEA privatization push? Some council members have said, we don't think this is appropriate. It's divided the body. Uh, I don't think it's appropriate at all. I think it's uh, an overreach. And I think uh, for the the um, candidates, uh, you know, it's going to, it opens up a real Pandora's box for the future. And those type of things, um, I think their time and energy could be used much better in a different way. You think they are getting pulled off their core I do. purpose? I really do. Okay, so the early mail ballots have already gone out, the election's in a few weeks. Your district, I think, is a pretty big one. Uh, so are you walking the district? What's it like to campaign in this new world where the, the lines just got redrawn? You might even be having to introduce reintroduce yourself to voters who might have come to town more recently and don't remember you have already served in public office. Yeah, we're starting our walking uh, schedule and the district, if I could tell you how big it is, it starts, it includes the Naval Air Station, which is such an economic hub for our city, mm-hmm. Timaquana and 103rd are the north boundaries, and that sweeps down to Clay County, and then 103rd at Old Middleburg Road South, 14 District takes the east side of Old Middleburg down to a road called Sandler, and then from that point on, um, 14 takes the east and west all the way out to Oak Leaf. And it's a huge district and a lot of new people. Mm-hmm. And so uh, I certainly know a lot of people in the district, but right. I want to, you know, get to know more. On, exactly. Exactly. Well, Alberta Hips, it's good to speak with you. It's been a while. So thank you for coming in. Alberta Hips, candidate for Jacksonville City Council, District 14. As we continue our series on profiling candidates running for office. Thanks. Thank you. In a moment, local musician John Lumpkin is working to support the city's next generation of artists. We'll explain how after this. Teach is more than just professional development. Teach is camaraderie. Teach is inspiration. Teach is respect. Teach is fun. Teach reminds you of why you became a teacher. Join us for Teach on Saturday, February 25th at the Hyatt Regency Riverfront, Jacksonville. 
Tickets are just $45 and can be purchased at wjct.org teach. Next time on The World, we're in southern Turkey. A family is living rough by the side of the road. One of the grown-ups tries to comfort a girl whose parents are missing and presumed dead. The adult says, I can't give her her mother, I can't give her her father. The toll on survivors of the earthquakes on the world. This afternoon at 3, here on WJCT News 89.9. I'm Robin Young. A new documentary explores a dangerous cult that lured Sarah Lawrence College students. Cult expert Stephen Hassan will explain how that could happen. And he should know he was lured into the Moonies. I was totally brainwashed, mind-controlled, or unduly influenced. And the phenomenon is real. Next time, here and now. Today at 2 on WJCT News 89.9. Will new money help make our streets any safer? The federal government has announced it's spending close to a billion dollars to tackle a post-pandemic spike in traffic deaths. But Vision Zero and other schemes have had a patchy record. Next time on 1A, we ask, how do you make our streets safer for everyone? Today, starting at 10 on WJCT News 89.9. Welcome back. Well, jazz great John Lumpkin is working to create an artist-in-residence program for talented performers here in Jacksonville. It's part of his John Lumpkin Institutes, growing the next generation of jazz artists. John is on the phone. Good morning. Good morning, Melissa. How are you doing? I'm good. Happy Valentine's Day. And uh, I'm excited to talk to you about music on a romantic day. Tell us about the John Lumpkin Institutes. Oh, sure. So. Yeah, we are the John Lumpkin Institute, and basically our goal in Jacksonville is to equip the next generation of jazz artists. Um, We're doing that by having two residencies. One is based in San Marco at the Posting House every Sunday from 4 to 7, and the other is based at Myrtle Brewing Company right off of Myrtle Avenue on Thursdays from 6 until 8 p.m. And basically we host students out there that are looking again to have a career in this wonderful music called jazz. And they host their sessions to where people are able to come out. Families are welcome as well. And it's happening every week. Every week. So this is also a way, even even if you're just looking to listen to a little music, you can come and enjoy it. Yes, ma'am. Absolutely. Why do you love jazz? Um, The reason why I love jazz is because It represents what America represents, um, which is democracy, not dictatorship. And that is one thing that I believe in with the Institute is that after I um, set something in goal, whether it be uh, for students to start their own um, residency or to be able to pick up something that they've never learned before, uh, the music carries over for them to be able to carry out that of which I set for them. And I serve as a mentor, and I serve also, too, as a, uh, I guess you could say, I don't want to say life coach, uh, but pretty much a guide along the way as they're able to um, go through this thing called jazz and life. That's why I love this music. It connects us all. And when you say we live in a democracy, not a dictatorship, how is this kind of music an expression of that to you? Uh, That music is an expression for that to me um, along the lines of being able to go out every day um, and live in this world, um, quite frankly, to where you have opposing views. Uh, For example, um, even such things that are are coming out now in terms of um, being able to put certain books out of schools, um, well, how do we deal with that? It's like we can't suppress who we are as a history, um, as a nation. So how do we go about that knowledge of being able to be able to learn about one another? Um, we can't just keep hiding um, our faces from ourselves. Like we have to sit down and have the conversation. And that's what I love about this music called jazz is that it brings it to the table. Everything about this uh, wonderful place we call America 
and were able to have a conversation um, healthy, you know, without necessarily pointing fingers, but being able to understand one's point of view is what I love about this music. Well, folks, you can come hear live jazz at the Posting House in San Marco on Hendricks every weekend as talented musicians from the John Lumpkin Institute grace the scene. Come through for drinks, a vibe, some beautiful music every Sunday from 4 to 7 p.m. And you can learn more at jlinstitute.com. More about John Lumpkin and the beautiful music he's creating across the region and growing new musicians in the process. So, John, are you playing music tonight on Valentine's Day? Uh, I am, and I'm doing a special show for my wife and three girls here, and I'll be playing on my daughter's pink drum set that she just got for her birthday. (laughs) Aw, how old is she? She is five years old. Well, that is a sweet way to spend Valentine's Day. Thank you so much for sharing that with us, and have fun. Melissa, thanks for having me. And again, check out that Jazz Weekend every Sunday at Posting House in San Marco. And here's a little jazzy music to set you about your Valentine's Day. Thanks so much for listening. And thanks also to our lovely team here on the show. I wish all of them a happy Valentine's Day, too. David Luckin, Heather Schatz, Brendan Rivers, Isabella Da Silva, Michelle Corum, and Bridget O'Brien helping out today. Drop us a line anytime at firstcoastconnect at wjct.org. We love hearing from you. I'm Melissa Ross. Get out there and make it a great day. We'll talk to you again at 9 a.m. tomorrow. Happy Valentine's Day. Support for First Coast Connect is provided by Baptist Health and the North Florida TPO.